Hi, humans out there. It's great to be back. If you follow humans now and then on Instagram or Twitter, you probably heard something about me needing some time to rest. This is one of the best decisions I've made, but it put me a bit behind on things such as publishing some really great episodes. However, first and foremost, I'd like to thank those of you who supported me as I focus on my well-being, and thanks for your patience between episodes the past couple of weeks. I'm excited to share this episode as it really spoke to me in ways I needed at this moment. I hope you enjoy my interview with Sheer Velocity co-founder and managing partner, Deborah Young. Let's dive in. What makes a great leader during difficult times? And how can organizations effectively find and onboard the leaders that will bring them into the future? In Season 2, Episode 5 of Humans Now and Then, I speak to Deborah Young, co-founder and managing partner of the global executive recruitment firm Sheer Velocity, about the rise of the chief well-being officer, the secrets behind onboarding leaders successfully, and one of the most underrated needs we have as people in our work, aligning to our purpose. The number one thing besides food, shelter, water, that humans need is purpose. And if you don't have purpose, it's one of the main things that keep us going. When you get old and retire and you're not working and your health is bad and you have no more purpose, people die younger because of that. Deborah Young has years of experience in recruiting senior and C-suite leaders across multiple industries, and she exhibits the highest level of quality and professional service through a consultative approach, strong work ethic, and impressive professional network. Her clients hold her in high regard as a professional businesswoman whose true passion is finding executives unparalleled career opportunities with exemplary companies. So, ready to learn more about how to recruit the right leaders to bring your organization into the future? Let's discuss. I'm Rebecca Scott, and this is Humans Now and Then. Deb Young, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Rebecca. I'm really glad to be here. Yeah. So um, we've had a couple communications, some great conversations so far. I'm really intrigued with some of the expertise that you have in relation to recruiting, especially in relation to recruiting leaders. And during this point in time, as we know, there's been a lot of disruption, not only just to the recruiting process, but the business process in general. Leaders are struggling to understand what they need in this new dynamic and this new world, but also starting to reevaluate what types of leaders might be a good fit for their organization. So let's start there. What do you think is a good recipe for a great leader, especially in the times of COVID? Well, first of all, I think leaders um, need relationship building skills right now and high emotional intelligence. They also have to have um, experience uh, leading remote teams. And that can be a challenge for those that have always had their teams in the office. And so um, I, I just, I, I see that as becoming a bigger and bigger issue, Rebecca, because um, having that skill set and learning it while you're doing it, um, I think there's a bit of a learning curve. And then there's a dis, the disconnect of not really being with people one-on-one and having those conversations. So that I think is going to be a huge challenge. And I think it is right now for companies who are looking to hire executives 
that, you know, have great skill sets, but they don't have any remote experience training and working with remote teams. I also think they have to be very empathetic. The situation right now is just got so many people almost physically sick of anxiety and stress and burnout and leading to depression over all of this. So as a leader, I think empathy is a huge, huge piece of what it's going to take to be a good leader now. Adaptability, you have got to have flexibility and adaptability in, in just everything you do all day long. You have to trust that your team is doing what you're asking them to do or doing their jobs. And, you know, the only way to gauge that is on deliverables and productivity. So the other key thing, too, is collaboration, staying connected to your team and lead them through being collaborative remotely. That's another, actually another part of just remote management. You have to be highly communicative and develop trust. It's critically important in finding ways to keep the team connected and reinforcing the bond that holds them together as the risk is that this becomes eroded over time. And I I can start to see the rope starting to fray a little bit with companies because when you're an organization that everybody's in the office and now no one's there, there's going to be this gradual disconnect and disconnect and disconnect. So as a leader, I think you really need to have those skills. Questions that I have for leaders right now that I think are really important, say mostly a a CEO kind of role, is right now, um, how are you going to stay in the forefront? And what is your vision going forward? And how are you going to look different? And how are customers going to view you as bringing value And managing people will be a critical issue. Colin Powell said something about set an example and know your people and look out for their welfare. And that kind of segues into the well-being piece that we were going to talk about. But real leaders are not born. Uh, The ability to help others triumph over adversity is not written into their genetic code. They're made instead. And everybody thinks, oh, you know, if you're not a born leader, that you can never be a leader. And that's absolutely false. Leaders are forged in crisis. They become real when they practice a few key behaviors that grow and inspire people through difficult times. The good news, though, is that we have models for this kind of leadership already in place. So that's very helpful. But you have to decide to become part of the solution and refuse to become mired in the problems. So times of uncertainty and crisis require leadership that keeps people focused on moving ahead and doing what is necessary to basically emerge victoriously. Our former president, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, in his 1933 inaugural address in the midst of the Great Depression, which is probably the closest thing that we have to what's going on now as far as the severity of what happened. But still, I think COVID is even just, it wasn't just the financial market. and It's just everything. So the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, is what he said. So he followed that by pointing to the nation's strengths in in meeting the crisis. And he states, this is not an unsolvable problem if we face it wisely and courageously. So... That's my take on leaders right now. The other piece of it, Rebecca, is leaders 
it's not a thing, it's a relationship. And so we need to get back to the basics, like what we almost learned in kindergarten, forgiveness, ownership, continuous learning, dedication, uh, selflessness, and teamwork, um, and innovation. So we learned a lot of those skill sets when we were very little. But I think our leaders need to dig deep to look at what it is that we need right now for America and for the world. Right. It has definitely been a learning curve for all of us to figure out how to navigate this ever-evolving, changing world. And there is a lot of fear in the environment, out in the world and within organizations. But one of the things, and I definitely want to um, highlight the well-being piece in just a moment. But before we dig into that, I'd like your reaction to some recent data from Gallup. So prior to the pandemic, we had started to see an incremental increase in employee engagement. At this point in time, Gallup just published some data that shows that now we're starting to see a decline in employee engagement. Um, What can leaders do to help keep their people motivated and engaged during this difficult time uh, when we're starting to see that and those engagement levels drop within organizations? Well, there's a couple different things, I think. Um, You can go anywhere from investing in the well-being of your people that's one topic. And then there's also the investment in engagement. You know, with the numbers declining, I am not surprised at all. The last study that I had seen was we were at 34% of workers that are engaged in their jobs. And companies will need to be at the forefront and visionaries. And like I said before, how are they going to look different in the next four to six months? I think you'll, you'll see a huge turnover in the job market once the job market opens a bit more. So if you treated your employees badly, especially through the pandemic, as soon as they have an opportunity to leave, they're going to be gone. And right now, employers are making a mistake if they turn off the tap on getting the right talent now. But regarding engagement, there there's some statistics about, first of all, losing talent. So losing top talent is costing you a ton of money. So the, the cost of turnover, according to Reflective, which is a performance management consulting firm, 16% of base salary is the typical cost of turnover for positions earning less than $30,000 annually, while very highly paid jobs and those at the senior or executive levels, they tend to have disproportionately high turnover costs, ranging up to 213% of their base salary. So for example, a highly trained employee who's making $150,000 a year, the cost for the organization to replace that employee could be as high as $319,500. Then there's employees that are not healthy, well, and thriving that cost employers 25% more in healthcare. And the cost of lack of innovation and inspiration, helping come up with new products and services that give you that competitive edge, which is really huge. Another study on employee retention by WorkHuman, happy employees stay twice as long in their jobs as their least happy colleagues. And organizations that score in the top 25% of employee experience report nearly three times the return on assets and two times the return on sales. If that isn't enough reason to try to keep your people and figure out this whole wellness engagement thing, 
you're going to be lost in the dust as an organization. There's a struggle with the virtual assessment of candidates, first of all, to begin with, on how to hire someone virtually. And so it's especially difficult for organizations and roles that can't be filled with clear processes and testing in, vir- in the virtual hiring process. So this is causing a lot of stress and anxiety for companies about are we getting the right person? But well-being is really more of, uh, it's not a program, it's not a topic, but rather a mindset or an ethos that a cultural orientation within the workplace. And it starts at the top. The way you get engaged workforce is one, leadership has to not only talk the talk, they have to walk the walk themselves. And it has to cascade down the organization through the VPs and the directors down to the line managers. And people have to have emotional intelligence. You can no longer lead with micromanagement and squashing people down and they're fearful to take a day off of work because they might lose their jobs and because they're, and they're sick or they have daycare issues, which is another thing that needs to be addressed for virtual employees right now. But when you squash people down, you lose the creativity and innovation. And when that happens, you can't become an employer of choice. And then you can't really hire top talent because word out on the street is that you're just a horrible place to work for. So there's a lot of different things that go into well-being. But if you think of it as uh, no longer a strategy just to simply manage healthcare costs and increase productivity alone, it is to create a marketplace advantage through your people. Government and religion no longer guide and shape our society. Businesses do. And I believe that pre-COVID, I think we were on such a fast track. People were zooming everywhere and the stress level was so high and there was so much depression and and health, health issues, mental health, physical health. It was Microsoft Japan that did a study uh, last November, they revealed that they went to a four-day work week and tri- a trial, and it boosted productivity by 40%. The other one is Caterpillar, the construction equipment maker, saw n- a nearly $9 million in annual savings that resulted from efforts to increase employee engagement. And it is not a gym membership, and it's not a smoking cessation program. Those are just boxes to check. That's all tactical. And some companies, you know, a lot of companies are dipping their toe into the well-being space, but they're treating it more like wellness versus well-being. And there's a huge difference. A good example was a company called Dropbox. So their CEO did a survey and she brought in a gourmet chef uh, masseuse. And so employees had gourmet meals, free breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And she thought, well, these would be great things to help people stay on top of things. And so she questioned the value of these perks and surveyed employees to see if they wanted it at all. And the results were really interesting because they really didn't want it as much as the executives thought. What they wanted was investment in training and leadership and tools and systems to make their work more productive. Because when you have those things, 
you see advancement in your career because you're getting trained on leadership and training and all these things that, you know, help build your career. If you feel like you're in a dead end job, that's, you know, there's no room for creativity and innovation and all these things, because the number one thing besides food, shelter, water, that humans need is purpose. And if you don't have purpose, it's one of the main things that keep us going. When you get old and retire and you're not working and your health is bad and you have no more purpose, people die younger because of that. So it's a really interesting topic regarding the purpose piece of it. Absolutely. What I really love about all of that is that differentiation you made between well-being and wellness. And so you're right. A lot of organizations do focus a lot on wellness initiatives, healthcare, gym memberships, like you mentioned, and so forth. But those pieces you're talking about, about how people feel, the quality of life around them, their um, fulfillment of their own purpose or the feeling of purpose, all of that kind of falls into a person's sense of well-being. Um, and sometimes organizations might miss the mark on that. I know one of the things that we had talked about previously is the rise of the chief well-being officer in organizations. I'd love to learn more about your experience in relation to the chief well-being officer for organizations and what kind of qualifications such a person would have. Sure. One other thing I want to mention about engagement before I answer that question is two researchers from Gallup wrote a book, Well-Being, the Five Essential Elements, and one of them is happiness. And this is where companies are going to struggle because research states that disengaged workers have increased levels of stress and, and report higher levels of illness, disease, absenteeism, and presenteeism, which is really being at work but not present and engaged. So. They, they say that happiness at work, on the other hand, is determined by how many positive social interactions one has at their job. And employees' contentment is partially determined by their relationships with their supervisors and uh, by how many friends they have at work and if they have a professional mentor. So happy workers are more productive, less likely to take sick time or suffer from being at work and, and not engaged. And when they have a best friend at work, they're seven times more likely to be engaged in their job and are also better at engaging customers, produce higher quality work, have higher well-being, and are less likely to get injured on the job. So these are all really important things that fall into the chief well-being officer. So the chief well-being officer is really about creating this business strategy that flows from the top down. And it's having a seat at the table and developing this well-being strategy that is inclusive of culture transformation, ability to have advanced and innovative technologies, and create a well-built environment. So they must have the ability to create a compelling, concise, and creative communication plan across leadership, middle management, and frontline employees, and focus on the employee inclusion. They also have to have the ability to understand the cost and the ROI. So the chief well-being officer is really a change agent and sets the strategy. Uh, this in individual will work collecting and analyzing data, performing strategic and annual planning, support and co-create developing thriving leaders, and establish quality, effective, and relevant programs, and focus continuously on quality improvement 
and strive to create cultural transformation that involves a broad approach to wellness that is inclusive of mind, body, and career. So I interviewed Jen Fisher from Deloitte, and she is the very first person to be a chief well-being officer. I believe she's the first, but she said she, she worked at Deloitte for 10 years in marketing, and she told me that she woke up one morning opened her eyes, but couldn't move her body. She was in such a state of stress and burnout. It was just like, it affected her from head to toe. So long story short, she she knew she couldn't keep doing what she was doing. And she came up with this idea and created a business plan and a strategy and presented it to the C-suite at Deloitte. And they brought her on right away. Now Deloitte has, you know, 243,000 plus employees globally. So it's a very large organization that could probably support someone in that role because their clients hire them for their employees' brain power. And those people have been, you know, road warriors. They work hard, long hours, and they need well-being in that organization. So you have to treat, you know, mental health as importantly as physical health, financial health, and social health. So the challenge with having that best friend at work is going to be really hard right now for someone new coming into an organization who doesn't know the leadership team, their peers, their direct reports in person to make that best friend connection. So I'm not real sure how to overcome this right yet. Uh, I think there's a lot of companies trying to figure it out. It's no different than the interview process, a virtual interviewing process and kind of taking a leap of faith with candidates that they're going to be right for your organization. But this chief well-being officer has to have a strategic mind, be a visionary, probably at least 10 to 15 years of experience in change management and employee engagement, which falls into this role, and um, extensive knowledge of the employee experience. It's all about the employee experience and the best practices regarding culture, technology, and environment. But their influencing skills have to be incredible. And they have to be able to set a vision so that everyone from all walks of life can identify with it and get on board. So they have to have a seat at the table. I, I know there's organizations that drop it down into a lower med- a level of HR where it does not belong at all. They work in conjunction with HR. But when you put that on the plate of someone, say, who's running benefits, they're already overworked. And they're just not high enough in the organization to be able to make these kind of changes and implement them. They're just too far down into the organization. Another thing Jen Fisher told me from Deloitte is it's not the person in that position who does everything, but they can lead a team responsible for well-being. And by being in the C-suite, it makes a definite statement that the organization takes this whole initiative seriously and is willing to devote resources to a cultural transformation and not a program. We all have a work life and a home life, most of us. But really what we have is one life. And everyone deserves to have a fulfilling career, job, profession, whatever it may be. And part of this process, a large part of what this person would be doing is to give that to them. The other thing too is when uh, you have a uh, healthy, great culture of well-being, People take that home to their families and then it comes out into their community, then into society. 
But what I think has happened is, is I think the toxic work cultures that a lot of companies have have created toxic home lives for people and toxic communities and a toxic society. I believe that we are running on the very end of what we had available to us energy-wise and thought-wise and brain power and physical in order to live the life that we were living pre-COVID. That's an interesting thought about adding a new person that would serve as somewhat of an executive role in organizations. And I'm sure a lot of small to mid-sized companies would probably have a challenge in thinking, you know, is this an investment that I should make as an organization? How would you advise those organizations that might be small to medium in size who might be considering such a role and how they might be able to find maybe a budget-friendly solution or another opportunity to be able to enable something like that in their organization? Well, first, we have to get the buy-in from the entire leadership team. The challenge for these small to mid-sized companies is typically the CFO because they're the ones looking at the dollars and the return on investment, they just don't see immediately. However, there was a study done, um, the statistics showed that for every dollar spent on well-being, the ROI is $3.92. So there is, there is information, but that's over a course of, you know, six years. So you got to look at it as a long-term play. And even when COVID is over, it's still just as important as it ever was. And we're never going back to the way it was, but to try to help small to medium sized businesses, you could bring in potentially someone on a fractional basis that can, you know, have that presence a couple of days a week in the organization and maybe have one person who's full-time that's more of the blocker and tackler of the actual implementation of the strategy. But I was talking with a colleague of mine in the private equity space. Middle America is small America is pretty much either family owned or private equity owned companies. And in private equity, they consider the companies that they buy as projects and they're in it to sell it in three to five, seven years. They're not in it for the long term. So those companies and those organizations are only going to acknowledge the problem of engagement once there's a problem like high turnover due to the lack of engagement that's going on. And it's going to be a recruiting nightmare and very expensive. So if they got somebody in, maybe at the private equity level versus into each portfolio company, and someone that oversaw well-being for, say, five portfolio companies, that might substantiate them to pay for it. But again, the struggle is going to be their mindset, and their mindset is all about the financials. And they're probably not going to be interested in a role like this. They're just in it for such a short term. But the real challenge is going to be keeping people engaged while working remote. So I think the philosophy may change because of this. Like I said, if they start to see you know, tremendous turnover in their portfolio companies, but it's really about how do you bring a sense of engagement and maximizing engagement in these organizations These companies are going to need to deal with this problem. Right now, there is no sense of loyalty in a remote setting. Tying an employee to their company and where they are at is a major issue. And it goes back to the whole engagement thing. So I think what's going to happen is it's not going to be about your personality 
it's going to be about who has the best skill set and that's who's going to get the job. And we've, we've all been taught, especially in recruiting, we do in our firm, we do a 360 degree look at candidates. We, we only work on high level searches, you know, VP and above and C-suite board. But we look at cultural fit, technical fit and leadership personality fit. And we have our own proprietary tools that we use to get at those things. And so you have to somehow figure out how to identify with people in this remote world. And once again, it all comes back to that right now. I think engagement in particular is more of look at companies that are maximizing engagement, creating regular change, safer products and services that are on top of it. It's kind of a marketing thing that you have to do. You have to market the company to your employees. And so, for example, every Monday, an employee letter goes out. You need someone who's going to manage that. I spoke with another colleague whose nephew works for Chobani. And we all know Chobani has this great culture. And their nephew worked for Chobani in New York. And he wanted out. It was too expensive. He was thinking of leaving. And they offered to move him to Cincinnati and work out of one of their other offices, their sales office there, so that he wouldn't have to quit and he could be in a more affordable town. So I also think what we're going to find is there's going to be people everywhere and they'll be more willing to live where they're at and fly as needed versus moving to New York or LA or Atlanta or Chicago. So, I mean, companies need to address this. It's, a, it's going to be a huge issue, the engagement. There's also the role of the chief engagement officer. And if you ask anyone in management at like large organizations, about what frustrates them the most. And one of the most common answers is silos. So the walls that go up between different departments or divisions that lead to poor internal customer service, competition for resources, backbiting, and sometimes even worse. So these silos not only cause frustration, they create inefficiencies that impede performance. And there's a lot of evidence now that organizations that break down the barriers to address the interests of all stakeholders outperform their competitors that investors have taken notice. Over $17 trillion in investment capital and multiple so-called environmental, social, and governance funds really now focus on public companies with high levels of customer, employee, and community engagement and sustainable management practices. So you need someone leading that and who's going to help break down those silos because in a smaller company, a CEO can get on board and try to lead that, but they have so many other things on their plate. And it's a strategic and systematic approach to engaging all the stakeholders. A large organization will either accept responsibility for the role the CEO will, or they'll have another executive, such as the chief engagement officer, they have the support of a single executive or they will need to put someone in charge of that effort. And the biggest challenge, I think, with most organizations' siloed engagement um, between multiple executives is that no one is truly accountable. It's a way to kind of just pass the buck around with the CEO often mediating between competing factions for resources and priorities. But the role of the CEO with or, with or without the support of a chief engagement officer is to oversee a strategy to ensure the organization really delivers its brand promises 
not only to consumers, but to all sales and non-sales employees. Yeah, absolutely. So that's an interesting thought about the roles that each executive might play in an organization, the levels of management that should be accountable for different areas, things like engagement and well-being, and as you mentioned. And one of the things that kind of weaved into to that conversation was in relation to organizational culture. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's a lot of things, uh, of course, uh, that we could talk about in relation to company culture. <laughs> but I, a couple of things I want to point out or, or think about, and one is in relation to recruiting. So a lot of organizations have had a debate over um, the level of cultural fit that uh, organizations should seek in uh, potential employees. And I would love to know kind of your thoughts and opinions around what cultural fit could mean or potentially how organizations might get the kind of concept of cultural fit wrong in some instances. Yeah. So in our firm, we created a cultural alignment for executives and we have the client take it and the candidate take it. And it's it's not an algorithm assessment. It's just designed to generate conversation in the interview process to see if you're either on the same page or if you want to bring in someone who's going to lead the culture in a different direction, you may want degrees of separation on thoughts. So the way we approach culture ad is asking questions around teamwork, innovation, empathy, flexibility, decision-making, management style, financial execution, structure and style and environment. And questions like, do you instill competition amongst your direct reports? Now, in some organizations, that is the culture and that's how they believe you get results. While other organizations, it can sometimes be downright unacceptable. So something as simple as that, the deliverable to our clients is a PowerPoint presentation of all 60 questions in a format where you see the responses of the candidate overlaid the client and you can see degrees of separation between their responses. And it's interesting because some people are miles apart on things that, wow, you're like, hmm, you know, they, they really are not connected here. That would be something to talk about in an interview. So it's just really important that you look at these kinds of things at the leadership level. And it's not necessarily, like I said, to eliminate a candidate. The client's going to have to make that determination because something may be a deal, deal breaker to them where they just can't do it. But regarding organizational fit, it's not an exact science and it might be subjective, which can result in a biased hiring process sometimes. So that's why it's a good idea to use a standardized assessment as one of the ways to measure culture fit. And I'm talking now for lower level employees. You still have to make sure they're the right fit. So using like pre-employment assessment tools, think of open questions, uh, maybe a company video or situational judgmental tests, for example. These situational judgment tests are actually very helpful because like I said, they include videos in your recruitment process that let candidates experience the job and find out how they're going to respond to real life on the job scenarios. And so you ask candidates to spend time in the office, which we can't do right now. That's another challenge. I shouldn't, not all companies, but some are kind of doing the half, the half every other day, half a week, a week in, week out. 
So they're going to have a hard time experiencing the job and finding out how they respond, like I said, to the real life on the job scenarios. So we're trying to figure out each day how to better the candidate interview process virtually. Um, if you do have an office, but you don't have people coming in, I highly recommend you create a video where you walk around your office and you show the great work environment to kind of help get a feel for the company that also gets a feel for the company culture as well. So I think that's a really helpful tool. Asking the right questions without, without a doubt, what's right will depend on your organizational culture, but asking culture specific questions during the interview stage really helps in identifying whether or not a candidate meshes with your company culture. Kind of think for an instance, a question like, can you describe the work environment in which you perform best? Or how do you feel about becoming friends with your coworkers? Some people don't want to do that. They just want to work and go home. If you're an organization where you have team events and all this kind of stuff, you know, that may be a rub for that person. It might not be the right fit for them. So you can't arrange informal meetings right now. At least it's not wise to, to ask a candidate to come meet someone. I think that that's, putting a lot of pressure on the candidate to say, do I risk my health potentially over this? And I don't think that's the way to go right now. Before you to like invite them to a teen lunch, for instance, or to industry event that you let them tag along to. I mean, maybe someday those things will come back. But the way someone behaves during those kind of unofficial moments can tell you a lot about them um, and their values. Are they attentive and interested in the potential colleagues or do they keep like looking at their phones and they're distracted? But same thing goes for the candidates, of course. After all, the trying to see whether there is an organizational fit process is a two-way street. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's an interesting time to think about cultural fit and really the recruitment process in general. Um, we think into the future, right? So in the future, or even just like today, organizations are using AI and data to narrow the pool of candidates, be able to select candidates in that manner. Uh, in the mm-hmm. past or to date, there have been some issues in relation to uh, bias in those AI algorithms that I think organizations mm-hmm. still try to sort out. But when you think about kind of the future of recruitment and the f- future of candidate identification, uh, what are some of the things that you think are um, are kind of good to think about or what are the things that might actually potentially concern you in relation to those types of technology actually selecting the candidates of the future? For the work that we do, Rebecca, at the senior level, I don't agree with the trying to fit someone into, you know, an algorithm. I think it might work for entry level where you have hundreds and hundreds of people, you know, trying to get to your or you know, get into your organization and that might help weed out the basic population. But I go back to having conversations around culture and, you know, also understanding their leadership personality. So when, one other thing we do besides our cultural alignment, excuse me, I am, I am certified in the Hogan assessments. And Hogan is the only personality assessment on the market that's designed for the selection of leadership talent. And when you get a good understanding of the seven characteristics of occupational success, adjustment, recognition, interpersonal sensitivity, ambition, or the 11 derailers or the dark side, we all have a dark side, some more than others, um, colorful, mischievous, dutiful, diligent, bold, excitable, 
And then there's also the piece of it that is about what aesthetically motivates you on the job, where you need to be aesthetically. And so those kinds of things are like power, tradition, commerce, altruism, hedonism. So when we do the Hogan assessment, we do that for like the top three candidates once we finally narrow it down. But you got to look across all three assessments. And that's what I got trained to do as a Hogan administrator and interpreter, because you can't just buy it off the shelf and administer. You have to go to Hogan school because if someone has a low adjustment score on the first assessment and has some derailers that are in the very concerned stage, they're going to derail quicker than someone who has a higher adjustment score on the first part of the exam. So knowing as a hiring manager, I think it's a great tool right now to use because it predicts behavior. And, you know, when you derail, are you someone who gets in everybody's faces and just yells? Or are you someone that, you know, just goes in your office and shuts the door and not and unresponsive and nobody knows what's going on? To better understand how this person will behave in certain instances, I think is a great tool right now in the interviewing process virtually to use. And we provide behavioral interviewing questions at the end of the assessment. The report that the client gets is around the areas of concern or red flags in their whole assessment to ask this candidate in the final interview process to make a better hiring decision. And I just think it's it's so crucial right now because you need to get anything you can that you can do to know about this person. And if you don't have tools in place, such like what we do, you're not doing your due diligence. So another service that we offer is it's called Before Onboarding. And our colleague in our St. Louis office, Michael Burroughs, wrote the book many years ago, and it still stands. You have to have the right onboarding in order for someone to be successful. So how do you rightly onboard someone in a virtual world? Well, what we do is we come in between the time the offer letter is signed and the start date of this new executive, and we interview their boss, peers, and direct reports. You know, the peer group can probably be the most difficult because it's like getting into that inner circle. Can you break in? And someone may be upset that they didn't get that job or their best friend got let go from that job. So you need to know what you're walking into, how to communicate with your boss. Very simple question. Some people go for a long time not knowing really, you know, what's the best way to communicate text, phone, email, whatever. I had a CEO tell me if they had more than three bullet points in their email, I delete it. So something as simple as that is really good to know. Or when is my time with my boss? Well, this particular instance, the boss said it was time for my leave my office to get to my car in the parking lot. That's your time. And so all these landmines that you have to try to figure out, all the concerns of direct reports is huge. Everybody's having a new boss. What's going to happen to me? You know, how's my job going to change? What restrictions are going to be put in place? So we create this blueprint for success with, you know, all this information that we've gathered very quickly and we share it with the executive before they even start on day one. So they'll know the landmines going in versus having to trip over them every day or, you know, the first 90 days, which can be so stressful. 
you want that person to hit the ground running. So on day one of their start date, we, we initiate a town hall meeting with this new executive and their direct reports. And this new executive addresses every one of their concerns anonymously. I'm not pointing out anyone about how he would manage these people. What that does is that starts to build trust on day one. The whole onboarding companies think they hand it off to HR. I tell you, you, you know, you're paying a lot of money to find this person. You want them delivering as soon as possible. And this is one way to do it. So I don't, I don't think any other onboarding processes are happening before the person starts. Right. And it's so important to build those relationships that you mentioned are critical to well-being is that if mm-hmm. they're able to build strong relationships with the people around them, they can do that much more effectively if they're onboarded successfully. They understand the expectations of their role. They understand where they fit in the organization. They have the tools that they need to be successful in their job. Um, without, without having these um, things available to them, it can be very difficult for them to start to feel connected to the organization and understand where they fit. So um, one more question is kind of thinking forward into the future again about what might make you optimistic. So some, what are the things that might make you optimistic about the future? Well, I think there's a lot of great talent on, out there. I think once the job market starts to just level off a bit, I think you're going to find people more open to new opportunities. They're not so fearful. I think business is going to, I'm, I'm hoping that we're doing kind of a V, like we're going up really hard right now, but once we get up there, it's going to just be gangbusters. We went into this financially well as a, as a nation and as a world. I think we know what we need to do. It's just getting people to follow. But in, in recruiting, recruiting is going to look very differently. Everything's going to be done on Zoom or phone. I think some clients are going to still want to see someone in person if they can make it happen and they're comfortable with it. But I don't think you can require that of someone right now. So and like I said earlier, I think it's going to be a little bit of a leap of faith when you think you have the right person. You know, and, and do your references. Check your references on these people for sure. And don't forget that part because that'll tell you a lot about them. And you might get some insight into how they might work virtually from their boss and their peers. We do 360 uh, reference checks. We do two bosses, two peers, and two direct reports. So you get the full circle of how the person you know behaves. Of course, people give you probably good people as references, but every once in a while, someone will be really honest with you and say, yeah, they need to work on that because typically I'll have you know the holding assessment results too for me that I can dive into their leadership skills. So I'm optimistic that it's going to continue to happen. It's slow right now for sure. But summertime is slow. Anyway, for recruitment, at least at the executive level, everybody's not trying to take a vacation of some sort. The kids going back to school, I think, are going to play a huge part in how this all plays out because daycare is such an issue right now that, I mean, people are doing Zoom meetings with their one-year-olds on their laps because it's just, you know, in the basement of their house because they didn't have anywhere else for an office. So getting creative, I think, as we continue to be creative, and the only way that's going to happen is by having well-being in your organization, 
to help develop the skills that make people happy, the empowerment, the um, purpose. And, you know, once you get those juices flowing in people, they can come up with some of the best ideas ever. So I'm very optimistic about it. Uh, it's just going to, it's going to be different, but I think we, we're figuring it out right now. Well, it sounds like you're coming up with the recipe for a great future organization uh, with innovation, well-being, in positive impact, surely in the world by taking care of employees, enabling them for success, and giving them an opportunity to follow their passions in an environment that aligns to their values. Uh, so, Deb Young, thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome, Rebecca. Always a pleasure. I hope it, I hope it adds some value to anyone who listens. I'm sure it will. Thank you so much. Deborah's experience, passion, and attention to detail in relation to recruiting leaders is clear. And there's no better time for us to consider how the leaders who are hired today will shape the future of work. Her company's approach to addressing fit from both the organization's perspective and the candidate's perspective demonstrates attributes that are critical to high-functioning organizations, empathy, a sense of belonging, and a focus on purpose. Beyond the pandemic, organizations are in the midst of a critical turning point in relation to how their companies venture into the future. They must find alignment between their stated values and their cultural norms. They must consider how a largely virtual workforce may uncover cultural weaknesses that need to be shored up, all while working across a multi-generational and diverse workforce that requires an important lens on an effective, inclusive culture. That's no small task. The interesting thing about turbulent times is that they spur needed disruption. They serve as a catalyst for us to improve, do better, and challenge things in a way that lead to better outcomes. Deborah's thoughtful approach in leadership recruitment is one example of how organizations can be mindful of the impact they'd like to make as they continue on their course. So, what is it that drives you toward the future? What do you believe will build the kinds of organizations that will improve the human experience in the world? There are so many opportunities to shape a better future, and there's no better time than now to get involved. So go on, go help shape the future. To learn more about Deborah Young and her company, Sheer Velocity, visit sheervelocity.com. That's sheervelocity.com. Before you go, remember to subscribe, rate, and review Humans Now and Then on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please share with those in your network that may have interest in shaping the future. Follow Humans Now and Then on Instagram and Twitter to keep up to date on this incredible journey. I'd love for you to be a part of it. I'm Rebecca Scott, and this has been Humans Now and Then, hosted and produced by Rebecca Scott. Episode notes can be found on humansnowandthen.com. Thank you for listening.